I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Pilsen Community Books and another taping of I-94. Let's get right to it. We are joined by the young person right immediately to my left. Her name is Eve Ewing. This is her book. It is called Electric Arches. We are so, so delighted to welcome her to this event tonight. Eve Ewing, everybody, give her a round of applause, please. Eve, if we don't mind, let's start off with the obvious. Electric Arches is a book obviously out from Haymarket Books. It is a, a kind of a multi, not a multimedia thing, but a multi, multi, multi thing because there's yeah. drawings, there's poetry, there's prose. Can you give the audience a little introduction into what you're trying to do with this book and, and where we're going with it? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it's really great to be here. Um, so the book is really uh, a coming of age collection. Um, but part of what I was trying to do with the book is play with the fact that um, time is not linear and sort of folds in on itself. So the book is a mix of uh, recollections of things that actually happened in my life, um, as well as other versions of what I call true stories from the past and the future. Um, and so some of those stories are true in this dimension. Some of them are maybe from another dimension. Some of them are stories that haven't happened yet. Uh, but I always start out by saying um, that the whole book is full of true stories, even though some of them involve like time travel and other things. Do you consider yourself like an uh, Afrofuturist in a sense? Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, to me, Afrofuturism is um, a great lens for talking about all these people that are doing work, a lot of which is rooted in Chicago, like um, Sun Ra and Krista Franklin and Colleen Smith and Natasha Womack and all these folks um, who've kind of built up Af Afrofuturism to be what it is. Um, so I'm really excited to be living in a time where there's like a lot of conversation about that. Eve, can you tell us a little bit about what Afrofuturism is for those who don't know? I I read the book. Um, how do you say her first name? Um, I believe it's Natasha Womack. We are internet friends, but I have never met her in person to confirm. Okay. So I may be I'm mispronouncing her name. I'll just say Miss Womack. Yeah, young Womack. Um, well, you know, She talks about um, kind of the precursors to uh, Afrofuturism, such as you mentioned Sun Ra, George Clinton, Parliament Funkadelic, yeah. and... Um, Grace Jones. Yeah. And uh, Grace Jones, you know, I'm a child of the 80s, and I, she was uh, she was very famous in the 80s. And she's kind of uh, been in and out of fame, but she, she seems she to be— She was iconic then. Though. Yeah, iconic, yeah, yeah. coming back into fashion. Can you just give us a little, like, a, a two-minute e-viewing uh, summation of what Afrofuturism is? Yeah, so, you know, like any great artistic movement, everybody's going to have a slightly different definition. Um, but the definition I usually give is— it is an aesthetic of art or thought that is premised on the idea that black people will continue to exist into the future, um, which sounds really simple, but is actually kind of a radical notion when you think about how much sci-fi you've ever consumed where there are just like no black people, which begs the question, where did everybody go? Um, <laughs> and the caveat that I like to give to that is that um, it also plays with the notion of the future that is not based on linear time. So one of the most influential Afrofuturist writers is Octavia Butler. Um, and one of her novels, for example, Kindred, is about a woman who's traveling back in time, um, back and forth between the present at the time the book is written and uh, slavery um, and encountering her own ancestors um, during the time of slavery and having to contend with that. Um, so that's a book that's about like time travel to the past, but it's still considered an Afrofuturist text because it's about 
um, playing with time, playing with reality. Um, and something that I always point out to people is that even if it's a term you've never heard before, you've probably encountered it. So like if you've ever listened to George Clinton, if you've ever listened to Janelle Monet, right, who's been writing these multiple albums that are all about the idea of like an android revolution taking place in an unspecified future. Funkadelic. Um, funkadelic, Mad right. Right, yeah. having a mothership like land on stage. So something I also love about Afrofuturism is that I think it's like a very um, popularly accessible artistic movement but it's also still like the term was only coined uh in like starting to be theorized in the early 90s and so it's also exciting to be um thinking about something that is very much like in flux and in development and so my definition of it might be very different from somebody else's and that that's cool to me well that's the best best definition of an art form when you have your own definition in my yeah. opinion um and i and, and miss Womack's book too it's interesting that i read um W. E. Dubois was a science fiction writer, and he had a short story called The Comet. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, it it's was, a great story. And it almost sounds like a Twilight Zone episode. Yes, yes. And a guy goes down into a, um, a vault, and a comet hits, and he comes out, and there's, a, from what I recollect, there's like equality and everything. Well, the only other survivor, so it's a black guy, and a comet hits Earth, and he comes up, and he's like, everyone's dead. And the only other survivor that he finds is this white woman. And they have to contend with the fact that, like, okay, we're going to have to repopulate the earth, right? And so it's this moment of having to conf confront this taboo of, like, a sexual relationship between a black man and a white woman, which could have get him killed. But it's like, oh, society as we knew it is over, and now we're going to have this post-racial society. And they're like, all right, we're ready, we're going to do it. And then, like, a white man appears and is like, hey, actually... Uh, like all the other cities are fine and will come and the woman like immediately turns on the protagonist right and um, yeah so even Du Bois was an early Afrofuturist um, and uh, yeah I love that story it's very depressing very sad story but it always reminds me of a classic uh, Twilight Zone episode where the guy is in the vault and there's a nuclear explosion. Or just Meredith. Yeah, the yeah, guy who yeah, wants yeah. to just read all the time. I love the Twilight Zone. Yeah. He wants to read all the time, and everyone's always bothering him. And then oh, he, he comes. Yeah, he comes back up and is like, "Now everyone, civilization has ended. Now I can read and never be interrupted." And then he drops his glasses and breaks them. That was Coach Mickey yeah. from Rocky. Well, he actually. And that's the end of the spoiler. He's actually alert. running up the stairs of the like main branch of the New York Public Library because he's so excited he can read forever, and it's. And he has this like sixty sci-fi like goofy voice. He's like, "Now I can read all." Of you know? <laughs> it sounds ah, like the uh, Simpsons doctor. Yeah, right. Yeah, Professor the, Frank. Yeah, he, was, he wasn't the Joker. That was Cesar Romero. Who did? Who was Burgess Meredith? Is he the Penguin? He's the Penguin. The penguin yeah. yeah, yeah. He was the Penguin on the Adam West Batman. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the boys because I read that article you wrote from Medium. I mm -hmm. think it's an online yeah yeah publication, and I think. Um, what was the title of it? It's called uh, The Chicago Negro and the Warsaw Ghetto. And you mentioned a Du Bois piece where he mentioned seeing a lot of atrocities, but the worst one he ever saw was the, the Jewish Warsaw Ghetto. Yeah. And you, you mentioned in there a column by John Cass, who's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chicago. For those people who don't know who John Cass is, let's just pause to boo. Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> he's the guy that's like, get off my grass, you kids. Yeah, Except he's, he's paid to have a column that is just that. Yeah. He's, <laughs> right. So so he mentioned, I, I don't know the full column. Yeah. I just know the context in which you quoted it. But yeah. he, he made a comment like, in these problem areas where there are high shootings, we should just put up walls yeah. around it. <laughs> Yeah, and, <laughs> I'm laughing because this is so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just curious if um, you heard from him at all. Oh, no, I don't think he knows I exist. Um, I occasionally will like tweet at him to troll, you know, be like, this is <laughs> like, you know, not just to troll him, but to just like be like, oh, you're so wrong or. But yeah, so he wrote this op ed 
he wrote this opinion piece where he was like, yeah, we should put up barbed wire and like a series of militarized checkpoints on areas in the south and west side, which will help keep the bad people out and protect the good people who don't want to deal with this gang violence. And I was like, they totally did that before. <laughs> in Poland, right? Like that's like a terrible, and the reason I wrote that piece was because um, I actually think that that, what I was trying to say in that is that there's a, a real danger uh, where moderate people or people who consider themselves liberal people, I actually worry might like be like that, that seems like kind of a good idea, right? Because Chicago is so segregated and because there are wide swaths of the city where people don't have to face the consequences of gun violence, it's very easy if you subscribe to this sort of like dehumanizing idea of who is committing these crimes and why uh, to be like, yeah, well, you know, maybe we should just have a wall just to protect the good people and keep out the bad people. Um, and, you know, first of all, the line between who's the good and the bad people is a lot more slippery than that. Um, but I worried, you know, I worried that that like every time like the president uses Chicago as a foil, that that might be a place where he could actually find resonance with like basically yeah. white liberal people in Chicago. And so I wrote the piece to be like, no, this is not a good idea. And I was intrigued to find out that Du Bois had himself gone to Warsaw and like reflected on what he saw as parallels. Yeah, I did not know that. I, I didn't know that either until I started writing the piece. Um, yeah, he's definitely like a hero of mine. He did all the, he like was a visual artist and a novelist and a sociologist and, had a great beard. I've been saying <laughs> I've been saying his name wrong my whole life. It's okay. You're not the only and one. And I work in a public library, so that's kind of gross. Yeah, but we mask our names in the show yeah. all the time. Yeah, we're really <laughs> we, we're like world champion kind of maskers. Yeah. Well, you're not the only one. And also, you know, there's a thing of just reading and reading and reading and not actually knowing how to say something out loud. So that's okay. We're really it comes from that. someone that likes to read, but it's not yeah, very exactly. academic. Yeah, exactly. So. Not very academic. Yeah. 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 Eve, one of the things I want to ask you in, in this book, and kind of getting back to what we started off with, with genre stuff, you have a number of pieces in here where you confront uh, racist incidents mm -hmm. with a kind of a supernatural coda. There's a, It's actually... Um, they're called know. retellings, yeah. Retellings. I, I'll hold one up for the audience so they can see it. But you have. Um, sorry to everyone on the radio. Yeah, sorry. Radio is not the most forgiving. <laughs> Although they, they were published on Guernica, so you can read them in Guernica okay, magazine. Okay, so you, you'll see the, the printed poem, and then what Eve's done is handwritten a, a retelling of the incident. But in every one of these incidents, and, and I, I, this is why I wanted to ask you about it, yeah. you have the people fly away, or you fly away, mm -hmm. or, or something happens where they go up into the air. And that was very interesting to me, and I wondered where why that happened. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so um, I knew when I was writing, a lot of these poems were written, uh, like a bulk of the book was written in 2015, although some of the poems probably go back to 2013. Um, and this was a time when like black artists were really thinking about what it means to confront death, right? Murder at the hands of the state, um, sorrow, suffering, grief, right? Really working through those themes in very public ways in all these different forms of art. And one of the books that really inspired me was um, Citizen by Claudia Rankine. Um, and a lot of that book, that book also has a lot of visual art in it, although she has a lot more, their, their publisher has a lot more like licensing money than mine. <laughs> so she has like really famous artists. And uh, I was like, well, I can do my own art for free. <laughs> um, <laughs> the art's beautiful, by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but so... So one of the things she does in that book is like document pain and document microaggressions and document challenges. And one of the things I wanted to do, wanted to do for this book was 
also do that, but in a way that wasn't just about the present and that was about the past and the future. So I wanted to write about these like traumatic incidents of racism in my life, um, but I wanted to do it in a way that offered me a way out. And that wasn't just like, then this really bad thing happened and it was super sad and depressing. And when I was a kid, um, but I also didn't want to be dishonest about it and like pretend it was fine if it's not fine. When I was a kid, whenever I had a bad dream, if I woke up my mom, um, she would I'd tell she'd be like tell me the dream and then she would say okay finish the dream and so if I said oh I, you know I dreamed a monster was chasing me and he was trying to eat me and she would say okay well then what happened you know and I would have to be like well um then I turn around and I was like why are you chasing me and the monster said because your shoes untied and I wanted to help you right and so <laughs> I had to come up with this sort of not pretending that the thing wasn't scary or that it didn't happen, but a fanciful or absurdist way of like finishing the narrative. And so I was like, okay, maybe I'll try that in a poem. Um, and it's interesting that you bring out the flying aspect of it because I, I didn't even intend that. And that became a recurring theme in all three of there's these three of these, what I call retellings um, in the book. And, you know, flight and flying has always been a really important metaphor for like black liberation um, from, you know, the people could fly, which is a great picture book that a lot of us read when we were kids to like a lot of spirituals, you know, old spirituals are about flying away to freedom to even like Kendrick Lamar singing, like rapping, like black boy fly, you know? Um, and so I'm really into flight uh, and, uh, so I think that that's probably where, where that came from. And in a poem, you can do anything for free. So why not have a bike that flies? Would you really fight Morris Day? <laughs> uh, I would not fight Morris Day. Well, with the poem, I have a poem about Prince and I said, I would fight Morris Day if you asked. Yeah. It is true that if Prince asked me to do pretty much anything... I, I, I would do it. I would personally fight Morris Day for Prince. Yeah, I would. I would fight anyone for Prince, even if I knew I was going to take a serious L. You know, if, <laughs> Prince, if Prince was like, "See that guy? I want you." To, you know, I would do pretty much anything for Prince, and then I would go directly to my therapist and be like, <laughs> "Prince is talking to me." <laughs> you know? there's, a, there's a lovely yeah. tribute to Prince, and and those of I'm sure everyone's seen therapist. Everyone's seen Purple Rain, yes. and uh, Morris Day is Prince's arch enemy in the film. Yeah. So. And yeah. I watched that film. The thing that inspired that poem is I used to watch that film over and over when I was four. It was my favorite movie. And uh, my mom would fast forward all the like sex parts. So I didn't really know the real plot of Purple Rain until <laughs> I was like probably 20. And I was like, oh, like there's so much more to this film. Similarly, my, I have a niece who's five and I recently showed her The Lion King. I was like, this is going to be great. You know, I'm like doing this like amazing rite of passage and I was like oh I can't this movie is so inappropriate and sad so I just started fast forwarding <laughs> like I fast forwarded Mufasa's death and so I feel like she's gonna be in college one day and people are gonna be talking about the Lion King she'll be like what do you mean the Lion King is a 15 minute long movie <laughs> right about a, a lion that like sings and makes friends and then the movie is over <laughs> that's her understanding so that's kind of what my mom did with Purple Rain and me I was like this movie is a lot more than I thought it's not just literal raining <laughs> like, I just that 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 line that made me laugh out loud because I was like, "That's such a awesome visual just to see you square off kid, with Morris yeah. Day and like Prince's ghost in the background." Morris Day would be he would be like a dirty fighter though because he would have goons. Yeah. He would not really fight. He would have his goons. He'd have the guy with the mirror. Yeah, he'd have yeah. the mirror guy fight, yeah, and yeah. the mirror guy would probably like. I just imagine this is like a video game where his special power is that he like uses the mirror to deflect your mm -hmm. attacks or something. Like Scott Pilgrim or something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was like a 16-bit video game about Prince. Prince, Prince and Purple Rain? 
Prince is in Purple he, Rain. He yes. is, but is he Prince? Is he Prince is the kid. Prince? He is an unknown oh, character yeah. called the kid. It, it is it is just Prince. Yes. Okay. <laughs> like the way that Michael Jackson plays Michael Jackson in Moonwalker. Yes. Yes. And in The Simpsons. Yes. And in yeah. the yes. Please, no one steal my idea for a 16-bit Prince video game, <laughs> which I'm sure will make me a fortune of money. Yes. Yes. Um, Electric Arches has a lot of range. Um, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of experimentation too. It's really playful. Um, and I, for me, some things landed, some things didn't. And much like my fight with Morris Day, right. like some things, yeah. Um, I was wondering if there are things that you want to leave behind as you continue to write, or if there are other things you want to explore. Like you, you took the traditional form of a sonnet and you kind of flipped. You, well, you didn't kind of. You really flipped it on its head, <laughs> and it, you you did this great imitation of a Greek epic voice in the last poem. Oh, that was probably you. my favorite. Um, a lot of different fonts, the illustrations, the handwriting. Where, where do you want to go from here? What a wonderful question. Thank you. Um, I think, you know, uh, so this book is very autobiographical, although, although not exclusively. Um, and I think a lot of the poetry that I'm writing now is not about me. Um, and that's sort of exciting. So I'm working on a new project called 1919. Um, and it's about the uh, 1919 race riots in Chicago. Um, and it's through uh, the lens of, so after this race riot happened in 1919, in 1921, the governor of Illinois commissioned a report to kind of like analyze why it happened and how it could be pre prevented. And so they published this 825 page report about uh, like what were the antecedents to this race riot. So I've been reading it and using it to write poems to kind of tell tell the story of this incident through a series of poems. And it's really exciting to like use the text as a launch point, as opposed to my own like traumatic childhood memories, you know? Um, and also just using that as a space to experiment with form a lot more. Um, so a lot of those poems like look really different on the page um, and pushing myself to write in forms that I wouldn't necessarily try. Well, do you find that harder to oh, like, make yeah. it come alive because it's not your memory? Oh, that's a good question. I don't find it harder to... I find writing and form harder. I don't find it harder to make it come alive. I think because um, part of... To me, part of being a poet is sort of training yourself. You know how like... Spider-Man or Batman or like superheroes have an uncanny they're always like scanning the landscape like looking for a place to intervene right and I think that part of being a poet is being attuned to things that pe other people are not necessarily going to notice that are um, like magical moments and uh, I find it I find those moments everywhere and I think it's really exciting to see something and be like, Oh now I'm gonna that's, like that's blow like this that up. last poem. Well it's not the last poem. Oh, in the Requiem book. for Fifth Period. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's that what you just described is that poem. Thank to you. Me. Yeah, it's like one moment. So that poem for if you're not familiar is uh it's about like a moment in a school where the it's uh the school is going to close and where everybody in the building is about to find out that the school is closing. But the poem just like moves through from the classroom like to the cinematic. hallway. It's like pan yeah. a panning of a camera. Yeah. It's like the classroom to the hallway, to the field, to the custodian mopping the floor, to like a girl crying in the bathroom, to the counselor's office. And then the last part of the poem is like the, the clerk, like putting all the letters and envelopes that are going to go to all the kids to tell them the school is closing. Um, and that, that poem is based entirely on me being a CPS teacher and 
all those characters are like real people whose names I've changed. And I, when I was a teacher, my classroom looked out onto the uh, fields, onto the like uh, basketball court and the street. Um, and so I would spend a lot of time like watching kids play basketball at the window or like just hearing the ambient noise of like a ball bouncing or kids like cursing or whatever. And that's like a very soothing sort of sound to me. Did, um, did Erica Badu read her poem? Oh gosh, I don't from know. From her to her? <laughs> I don't, not to my knowledge, to my knowledge, neither LeBron James nor Erica Badu is <laughs> in any way aware of, uh, Ron Artest. Ron, I was going to say, what about Metta World Peace? Yeah, not Metta World Peace. No one in the poem, as far as I know, no one in the book knows that these poems exist. I do, Bell Hooks has read the book and she's a really big fan of the book. Uh, which is like made me cry a lot. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. like I had like a super delayed, like emotional response to, I like sobbed into a pillow when I found that out. And uh, Andre Iguodala is actually a big fan of the book. So he's, to, to my knowledge, he's my only NBA fan. <laughs> Somebody came to a reading yesterday. It was this, I did this reading in, at, in Philly and this like kind of broy like kid came up and he was like, I'm a big fan. I found out about you from Andre Iguodala's Instagram. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, and I love your poem about Ron Artest. I was like, thanks, bro. <laughs> you know, like, cool. Yeah, to my knowledge, he's my only my only NBA fan. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he's sharing the book on the bus with other people. Probably not. Yeah, almost sure. almost certainly not. <laughs> Which brings us to the poem about Meta World Peace. And I asked Eve before the show. I'm, um, Meta World Peace is a – was a – well, he still plays, but he was a somewhat. Well, I think he was. He's a formative figure in basketball. Yeah. Yes, like him. yes, he is. And he was a bad boy, and he was in Detroit, where you're from. He yeah. used. He was in a fight, which is known as malice at the palace, which was a uh, where they actually two players stormed into the crowd, and because these guys threw beer at him, and I believe a racial slur, and he just started wailing on a dude in the on crowd, a fan. And, and the dudes. pop yeah. goes like flying. Oh yeah. man, it's epic. And there was like a bunch of people, and it turned into a big brawl, and like guys were like fighting and chairs flying. And, and yeah, I think they stopped the game. Yeah, they stopped the game. Yeah. And uh, Grantland actually has a um, oral history yeah, of that. Yeah, it's really good. R.I.P. Yeah. Grantland. And uh, I love Ron Artest. Um, I love basketball, and I love the bad boys. However, um, in the actual poem, um, let me find out what page this was on. I'm so glad you're asking about this poem because I I'm a fan of it and I ne- I don't talk about it. Nobody so on asked page me about 23. this poem. Twenty three. Twenty three. I love it. I too should probably look at this. So I asked Eve. Um, the actual poem is called "Excerpt from an Interview with Meta World Peace" because Ron Artest changed his name to Meta World Peace, aka Ron Artest, aka the Pandas Friend. Which he also changed his name. Yes. To. Yes. Yeah. So he's uh, Meta had a complex life. Let's just say that but an interesting thing and i was also telling eve about this before the show i i go down the wormhole when i do when we prepare for these shows i read after futurism i read eve's essays and then you know i did some research on prince and ron artest but ron artest um has is a huge advocate for mental illness yes, now yes and, that's a big um, part of why i wrote the poem yeah also. and he's you know obviously has some mental illness issues and um former bear brandon marshall was the same way but um i didn't know that because he's known as the guy that ran up into the stands and pounded on right. someone in the, in the, during a game, but he's not known as a guy that's like an advocate for mental health. And um, I'm a pretty big supporter of that kind of thing. But it's a, you want to just tell us a little bit about the poem? You said yeah. you don't read it much. No, I'm so delighted. I don't read it because I don't think it translates very well to like a spoken audience. And there's so much preamble that I would have to give. But um, yeah, I wrote the poem. It sort of is what we were just talking about, about like seeking out poetic moments, right? So I was telling you before the show, 
I was up at like two in the morning, like you do, binging YouTube videos, right? And I was watching the video of the malice at the palace over and over. I think because a good friend of mine, I have two friends, Ben Alfaro and Jose Olivares, who's a Chicago and who has a book called Citizen Illegal coming out that you guys should definitely check out. It's also on Haymarket. Um, so Ben and Jose wrote this book called Home Court, um, and it's all poems about basketball. And Ben is from Ben is from Detroit, and Jose is from Calumet City. And I did the cover for the book, like before anybody was checking for me for anything. They asked me to do this book cover. I'm very proud of it. You should check it out. Uh, but um, so Ben Alfaro was talking about, he, as a Detroiter, he was talking about the mouse at the palace. And I was like watching it over and over. And I was thinking about so many things like, number one, in NBA history, it was seen as this like peak moment in a cultural war, right? Like, this is what's wrong with the NBA, right? And all these kind of racially coded... Started with Iverson. Iverson, totally, like, hip-hop culture. The idea was that hip-hop culture had infiltrated and poisoned the NBA, right? And that Iverson was like... Iverson and Artest were, like, peak symbols of basically unruly black bodies, right? Like, black people that insisted on showing off their blackness in uncontrollable and like uncouth ways right and then it's like now everybody has to wear suits and it started all this stuff and um and just as a fight like as a moment I'm not a huge like I'm not a person who enjoys watching like world star videos or whatever I don't like watching people fight but it's so beautifully choreographed like I highly recommend you I, like if I were to go to Steppenwolf theater and see like uh like you couldn't like a director could not craft this thing yeah. more beautifully the way it unfolds, right? Well, plus he's fighting Wallace. Yeah, right. He's fighting Ben Wallace, right? And it's like... He's huge. Just seeing somebody... Go, and it's like, I want to see it with like an operatic score. I want someone to go on YouTube and make a YouTube video of the Mouse at the Palace with like, you know, Carl Orff like in the background, like Orf, 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 yeah. Fortuna. Yeah, yeah, like, because it's just this moment of, you know, you, the last thing you expect is that you're going to go in the audience and or go in the crowd and just start like, like, clocking somebody anyway so i was watching this and i was like this is amazing and <laughs> and i knew that ron artest was very like that he is a person who struggled with mental illness which is also something i've struggled with me too and um that he like changed his name all these times and that the the things that he was doing that were very showy were also like signs of him struggling with his mental health right um and so I just started like reading about him and so I decided to pretend that I was interviewing him. So the whole poem is my my inventions of his responses to my invented questions. And all of the like the the numbers in the middle of the poem, do you have any guesses about what those numbers represent? I don't, I was just going to ask. The, those are so those are his uh, point to totals of each of the teams that he's played on. Okay. As like this NBA. So it says like 175, 193, 167, 69, 298, 29. And when you're reading the poem, you're like, what is that? I don't know. So the poem's also just confusing in a way that I like, much like much like Metal World Peace, <laughs> a.k.a. Ron Artest, a.k.a. The Panda's Friend. Um, and the last stanza in the poem is about, I found out that he really likes listening to like old jazz music, like cra old crackly like jazz LPs. Poor, like poor recordings of poor quality recordings of jazz uh and so i i thought that was super interesting uh yeah so that's kind of what that poem is about and that's an example of what i'm always trying to do is like i just think that there's poetry everywhere you know even in a dude like punching a dude in the I face agree, at an nba game you know listen i'm also a big football fan and my wife and i were watching a football game one time she's like this is really beautiful yeah. like she's not she's like i never thought about it as an art form so now whenever there's like a crazy play 
But I also want to say, too, we got to get to the Lyric Opera and, like, suggest yeah. the Malice at the Palace. If anyone here works at the Lyric... Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it would be cool. Like, they do the live things of, like, Zelda or, yeah. like, that Looney Tunes. I want to see... I don't know if they would really like that idea, but... Um, we'll, I like the idea. <laughs> Guys, we have to take our first quick break. So would you all give it up, please, for e-viewing? <laughs> Welcome back to this edition of I-94 Pills and Community Books. Our special guest tonight is e-viewing. Please, once again, give her a warm welcome. Now, Eve, you were talking just before the break uh, about Ron Artest, but also about the Chicago public school systems. You were a teacher there. You're a passionate advocate for education. Want to? Uh, I don't think I'm dropping any spoilers here, but you do have a new book coming out yeah, in October, no right? No spoilers. Uh, it's uh, Go uh, Ghost in the Schoolyard. Am I correct? From University of Chicago it. Press. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's about? Because that's going to kind of lead into my next question, because I know what the book's about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, so the book is called, as you said, it's called Ghost in the Schoolyard, and the subtitle is um, racism and school closings on Chicago South Side. Um, and it is about that. Um, so it the book is about the 2013 um, Chicago public school closures, uh, which are now back in the news, both because they're the one of the deals of the closings was that um, there would be a five-year moratorium on school closures, which is now being lifted. Five years flew right by. Um, and also because there's a c contention over school closings in Inglewood, um, as well as National Teachers Academy, which is on Cermak and Wabash, fighting passionately to keep their school open. Um, and so the book is really about school closings, but it's also uh, using that event and that series of events to really talk about the history of racism and segregation in the city. And part of what I'm trying to do is explore um, how segregation in that, that part of the city's history really shapes so much about our present day life in ways that often go unacknowledged or often go acknowledged by people in communities and not by people in power. Um, and it also explores the emotional aftermath of school closings um, and the impact that it has on the community and on people that are affected by it. Um, and so what I'm hoping is that the book will be a tool for conversation um, for people to have a little bit more of an informed discussion about what it means to close a school and what's really on the table when you make that decision. Now, why are, for people that don't know, three schools in Englewood are being targeted for a shutdown. And of course, you already mentioned uh, NTA. Why are these schools being shut down? What is CPS's rationale for this? And then, if you don't mind, what's the actual reason that these schools are being shut down? Yeah, so um, so the argument that has been used is this idea of underutilization. Um, NTA is a slightly different slightly different situation, but talking about Englewood and the 2013 school closings, the argument is underutilization, meaning that we have really big buildings and not a lot of kids in those buildings, right? Um, and the way it's framed by CPS is often based on an idea of choice. Like people, they there's something in education where there's this idea of talking about education like a marketplace, right? Like I go to the cereal aisle and I make my choice of what cereal that I want based on how much sugar is in it and like if I'm into marshmallows and whatever, right? And my, my personal preferences. And there's a way of a kind of neoliberal way of talking about schools in that way. Like parents are shopping for schools. And so when they say the schools are underutilized, it's sort of under this idea that like 
people just aren't choosing to go to these schools. And what that ignores is uh, a great deal of context, including but not limiting to uh, the ways in which black families are leaving and being pushed out of the city of Chicago. Um, the destruction of public housing uh, plays a huge role in what happened in Chicago in 2013 with school closures, um, as well as the fact that uh, hundreds, uh, not hundreds, but lots and lots of new charter schools and other uh, schools have been built um, around these communities in different ways. And so, um, and the other thing that's always interesting to me when you say like, what is it really about? Uh, it's interesting to me how we have different metrics for different kids. So in 2013, people were saying, well, we have to close these buildings because they're empty. Like there's not a lot of kids in the school. And I say, you know, at the lab school, if you have seven kids in a class, that's like a great, awesome thing, right? People pay thousands, tens of thousands of dollars a year, right? The pres everybody from the president to the secretary of education to the mayor pays tens of thousands of dollars a year to uh, have the privilege of their kid being in a small class. Um, but when you're talking about CPS, all of a sudden the conversation became about this phrase that I love writing about called the enrollment efficiency range, which is basically how many kids you can pack into a building. And so these schools were closed based on this formula of like, okay, we have this many classrooms, there are this many kids can fit into a classroom, ipso facto, uh, the school needs to close. Um, and there are also lots of other messed up things like CPS um, often would miscount classrooms so that rooms that were being used for certain things or that had been allocated to charter schools were being counted against schools, um, as well as the fact that two schools that are near each other would be pitted against each other. So like if both of them were almost identical, the one that had test scores like two or three or four points above uh, would be would remain open and the other one would close, which like is statistically doesn't make any sense and also would really be pitting people in the community against each other instead of, uh, you know, and making them feel like, OK, I have to fight for the survival of my school by disparaging this other school instead of realizing actually we're serving pretty much identical populations and all of us are in a really bad place. Um, and I won't go too deep into the NTA situation, but one thing I want to say about that is, uh, so National Teachers Academy right now is slated to be closed and turned into a high school. And I went to a community meeting about it recently. And something that made me really sad was that people from NTA were standing up saying, you know, please keep our school open. And then you also had people from Chinatown that were like, well, we also really need a school. And we've been struggling for a school for a really long time. And it became the situation where uh, people are feeling like we have to fight against each other uh, when in fact every kid in Chicago should have a good school and every kid in Chicago should have a good school in their neighborhood so that they don't have to do what I did which was travel an hour or 90 minutes on the CTA to get to school in the morning to get to high school right uh, we shouldn't all be fighting like eighth, I used to teach eighth grade and the worst thing was seeing eighth graders feel like their life or death was on the line if they didn't get into one of like eight schools in a system of 150 high schools, right? This is ridiculous. It doesn't have to be that way. Um, and it sort of feels like having a parent come in and be like, all right, I only have one cookie and I have five kids and everybody has to fight over it, right? It's like, just buy more cookies. It's not that, you know, it's not that, or you have a whole box of cookies in the kitchen and like you just are bogus and don't want to share them, you know? Uh, yeah. So it's very, it's an interesting and depressing topic and it, it never ceases to amaze me the level of like bizarre dystopian rhetoric and like weird Orwellian stuff gets said um, as these decisions are being made. Like enrollment efficiency range is not, that's like not a thing that any educator would ever be like, you know, what's important the, the <laughs> enrollment efficient like this is not a thing you know well they've there's always been a war on education my mother was a teacher in detroit and you know ever you know since 
teachers are oh, these overpaid enemy of the, <laughs> right. of the of the working man and things like that. You know, we all know it's it's uh, crap. Yeah. yeah. And Detroit has, I mean, another thing about the school is that as a, about the book is that as I've been writing this book, people in Detroit are like, we need this book. And people in Philly are like, arts, we lost 23 schools. Right. And people in Baltimore and people in New Orleans and people in D.C. and people in New York. Um, and so part of what I'm also hoping is that uh, this can be like a, a bigger conversation about what our values are and how we're making decisions. And the same kind of like, you know, I'm a Chicagoan, so I'm. I'm prone to like conspiracy theories because <laughs> because there are consp- because there's scams like because also they're real like the most crazy conspiracy theory you could ever come up with is not worse than what Rod Blagojevich like actually was doing you know like, <laughs> like or Barbara Bird Bennett or any of these people um, but there are like Paul Vallis is like a school carpetbagger like he was in Chicago and he instituted a lot of the things that have like as the superintendent a CEO. CEO, in case you needed to be more depressed about the state of our schools that we call our superintendent the CEO. Um, He was the CEO here, and then he went to New Orleans after Katrina and transformed it into an entirely charter district. And then he went to Philadelphia. And now, I mean, it's like there are there are actually a limited number of character actors. Barbara Bird Bennett was in Detroit before she came here. And when the headlines started hitting about her, people in Detroit were like, you hired who? Right? (laughs) What? Scammy lady? Scammy McScamalot? She got a job? Right? Like, um, she ran off with like hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, she and I always have to say it because it's one of the great lines in Chicago political corruption history. She said, "I have casinos to visit and tuition to pay." Right in an email. Don't put that in an email. <laughs> right? You will be caught. Um, same thing. The guy who runs the Chicago Housing Authority, which right now is sitting on uh, a three to five year waiting list in a city where lots of people are homeless, a surplus of vacant units that are boarded up that they just choose not to use, and a surplus of money and have paid all their pensions off for the next 20 years, which is great, but like how and where, and has no oversight. Like the city council doesn't have the ability to actually audit their books, so there's no financial oversight. The guy who runs the the CHA, who's also unilaterally appointed by the mayor, he was from Toronto. So when I started writing about uh, that guy, the people from Toronto were like, what? You got Scammy McScamalot? Someone gave him a job? Like somehow, you know, it's like if you're a, a fiend and a thief in other cities, come to Chicago. And it wasn't he hired by Rob Ford, the crack smoking yes, mayor of yes, Toronto? Yes, yeah. he, he that's, was. That's always who I look for as a guy hired yes, by a former Rob, crack addict who died. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so he, uh, yeah, he's not not a good egg. Yeah. I was, I was wondering, um, I wanted to talk a little bit um, When's your book coming out before we... Uh... It's coming out in October. And yeah, it's called Ghost and Squared, coming in October from University of Chicago Press. Because before we run out of time, I just want to say some of Eve's descriptions mm-hmm. are um, some of the most beautiful that I've read in a long time. And, Thank um, you so these much. Guys, these guys can tell you I'm not a poetry guy. And I, I loved your book. And I even called Mike and I was like, I love this book. And, <laughs> Thank um, you. But there's a description. I was wondering if you'd mind reading it. So sure, I'd be honored. Oh, yeah. Um, what I talk about when I talk about black when Jesus. When I talk about when I talk about black Jesus. And I just Boy, marked the paragraph right here. And I feel I, like I'm in class. I'm like, what page is yeah. <laughs> Page 73. Now let's everybody turn to page right. 74. Pretend that I already <laughs> read it. paragraph here. Sure. I, I, I think it's one of the most beautiful descriptions oh, I've ever read. Oh, thank you. So. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is from an essay called What I Talk About When I Talk About Black Jesus. And it was originally published in uh, Seven Scribes. Take a picture of that with your phone, my grandma instructs, her slight frame leaning over my own. She's wearing a grandma uniform, with which you might be familiar. 
She has just returned from singing at church, and so her makeup and hair are impeccable, and has also changed into a pearl-colored cotton housecoat with faint traces of a floral pattern and a pair of slippers. I sometimes worry that in our day and age, grandmas have limited places to purchase housecoats, and dwindling numbers of people even know what a housecoat is, leaving them to guard the ones they have left like careful misers. This particular housecoat thrives on against all odds, and rather than clashing with the hair and makeup, one thinning and fading, the other regal and perfect, they exist in a sort of detente. They have tolerated each other for this many years, and they might as well keep on keeping on. All right. Thank you. There was just something so striking about that paragraph. I had, I like literally had your grandmother's, you know, a picture of your grandmother in Thank my head. Thank you, while I was Louise. It. Louise Miller, my my namesake. I'm my middle name is Louise after her. And then I want to ask you one other question. Um, you said, um, I read that your father was a cartoonist for yeah, the reader. Yeah. Um, did they really? Did your mom and dad really meet at a Greyhound station? They did. They station? really met at the Greyhound. The one on bus Canal. Station. The, the old, the old Greyhound. Okay, bus, the, the old, old bus station. Yeah. Um, and your mm-hmm. father was a cartoonist. Yes. A comic book, comics. Uh, Jack both. Stiff. Yeah. Right? So he re- he had a comic strip. He's a he's a caricature artist, and he also ran a comic strip in the Reader called Jack Stiff. I couldn't find an um, archive of it. It is so somebody from the Reader sent me a PDF of it. Okay. And I sent it to my dad, and he was truly mortified. He was like, <laughs> "How did anyone find this? It's so bad." It's impossible to find. Uh, yeah, so I do. Have, I'm happy to send it to you if you want to read it. It's a. It's like a, a noir, like a gritty detective noir uh, comic Jack strip. Stiff. Yeah, but that. the main character is this guy Jack Stiff, who is a skeleton. So he's a skeleton who's a detective, and it's just like a skeleton with like a trench coat and a fedora, uh, who's like this hard-boiled, you know, uh, detective who's like always getting evicted because he can't make the rent this month, you know, and like doesn't pay his secretary. It's like very like cu- kind of like you know detective cliches. Um, and he also the comic book that he sold my mom when they met at the grass at the bus station, which he sold her for a dollar, was called Ronnie Rat. Um, and it was about uh, Ronald Reagan, yes. but portraying him as like a rat. And he, um, yeah, and he's PDF known the Klonskis. Yeah, I got, I found that in the Harvard ar- archive. So when I was in graduate school, I emailed them and I was like, can you find this comic book for me? And the That's Harvard amazing. librarians, shouts to librarians like yourself, they found this comic book that led to my very existence. Um, and uh, he, he did like, um, when Helen Schiller was first running for Alderman, um, he did this like, comic of the mayor uh like like i need to get this helen schiller out like kind of portraying uh richard m daly i guess he wasn't the mayor yet uh as this villain who like was against helen schiller as a hero and uh so yeah he he just was doing that i guess as an influence on me huh yeah helen (laughs) schiller was a pretty controversial alder alder person yeah. i guess i call everyone the alderman yeah, they're, they're so called alderman. i'm not very gender progressive in that I'm regard not either, i guess but she was a alderman in uptown and she was very controversial because she was actually for people you know for there was a large mentally ill population up there and and for public housing and things like that so kind of the old guard of uptown that lived in the mansions by the lake there was a good there was a big war up till when she left and yeah it was yeah. What, yeah. when she leave like 15 years yeah i feel like more recently than that but i also don't believe in time so okay um but that's helen is that's great that's very afro yeah it is yeah. and she um her granddaughter is uh Brittany connor who also is a poet um and who grew up in louder than a bomb and going to young chicago authors with me and stuff so you know chicago is not that just not that big it's a small city. Yeah, it's a small city. It's a small city. Small town. Well, with that, we've gotten to the portion of the uh, 
program where your questions come into play. Oh, hey. So from Shelby, who I believe is the Shelby who did our poster. Thanks, Back Shelby. there with the glasses. That's her. Thank you again. Thanks, Shelby. Shelby wants to know, Eve, what role does Chicago play in your work? Oh, it's everything. First of all, thanks again for your beautiful poster. Um, it's really everything. I think that I'm like a Chicago obsessive. I think a lot of people who live here are like that. Um, so part of it is that... Um, I always say I'm I'm doing one big project. Like people are like, oh, you know, you're a sociologist and you're a poet and you're a visual artist and I wrote a play this year and I also just like to ride the CTA around a lot yelling at people and, you know, I do a lot of different things and a lot of, a lot of people, <laughs> common Chicago hobby, just ride the CTA and yell at people. Uh, and so, but to me, I, only, I have one project and my one project is trying to make a city that is worthy of how much we love it. Um, and I, I don't believe that I can change the country in the time that I'm going to be alive. Like I don't, I was told that in elementary school and I don't think that that was true. But I do think that it's feasible for me to do something in the time I have on this planet to make my city a better place for people, um, especially for children, especially for black children, especially for immigrants, like for all the people that on the one hand have made the city what it is and on the other hand are consistently um, downtrodden and shoved aside. Um, and the best part about that is that Chicago also gives me the blueprint and the heroes for how to do that. So every day I'm like, what would Studs Terkel do? True. What would Gwendolyn Brooks do? What would Carl Sandburg do? What would Sandra Cisneros do, right? Like. Uh, what would Margaret Burroughs do? What would Lorraine Hansberry do? And all those people that give me a blueprint of what it means to be a writer and a thinker in service of community um, really like build me up and give me the courage to try to do that. So yeah, it's my everything. And I also feel like um, I believe people should build where they are. So it's not that I think everybody should be obsessed with Chicago, um, but like in the film Rushmore, there's this thing Max Fisher's like, it's my Rushmore, right? She's my Rushmore. Like, I think everybody should have their Chicago and it doesn't literally need to be Chicago. Actually, I'd prefer if it wasn't. I don't really, you know, like I feel like a little bit of outside obsessive attention is a little too much. But um, yeah, I want people to love where they're from as much as I love where I'm from. One of the, I'm a Chicago obsessive as well. And I'm not a native. I moved here in 95, but I'm not leaving either. <laughs> well, one of the things I wrote down is um, one of the comparisons I made with your book, mm -hmm. and it, it's not stylistically or content or anything, but uh, Nelson Elgren, Chicago oh, City. Oh, yay. Main. Thank you. I was hoping you were going to say that. And the, <laughs> and the reason I do is because you have the same kind of love that he did for the city. Elgren said that loving Chicago is like loving a, a woman, woman with, with a, a broken, broken nose. nose. You might find lovelier lovelies, but never a lovely so real. Exactly. And uh, Sorry, you may well find lovelier lovelies, but never a lovely so real. And I, I love that book and I love the city. And when I was reading about it, it was like even, you, you know, you talk about the faults, the racism, the segregation, but there's also this love of, you know, just looking out a window like you were saying with your classroom or, you know, your grandmother's house code and just these things that make us who we are. And Chicago made me who I am. You know, I, I came here when I was 25 years old, but I've been here longer than I've been anywhere else. And I have that Mike was nudging me when, you know, you're saying you love Chicago because I'm, I'm nuts about the city and and when we talk you know like when still trying to turn me into a bulls yeah. and a bears fan. <laughs> yeah. but you know that this neoliberal war on chicago yeah. too we all take it personally you know yeah. it's like well what about chicago well what about it yeah you know what do you know about chicago <laughs> right you know and i can't swear so i won't but, right you know, it's right right <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, I, I, that's how I see the world. And I was really raised by my parents to see it that way. But I also, like, I also love Detroit, right? And I love meeting people from Detroit that love Detroit. I lived in Boston for five years. That's a city where, like, ha that has a lot of the same problems we have here and where people fiercely love it. And I think, I think I just, I always love meeting people who love where they're from. One of my dear friends, Hanif Abdurraqib, he is from Columbus, Ohio. And, like, Oh, we'll that's, be on this show. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. That's my show. homie. Yeah. Uh, everybody look out for that. That's the homie. Um, two weeks, guys. Two weeks. But like, if you talk to Hanif, you will walk away and be like, oh, Columbus, Ohio is the epicenter of American culture. <laughs> right? Like, and I have been all my life, I've been missing out on everything and everyone in Columbus. Like, and I just, I love talking to people like that that are about, that's something he and I really share. And that kind of brings us together as we both really love where we're from. All right, the next question, since we're, we're running short on time here, from Dave. Thank you for writing down your names, by the way. No Freds tonight. Is there <laughs> ever a point, Eve, where the process of writing stops feeling like work? No. <laughs> no. Uh, let's see. I want to say... I want to say yes. Well, actually, yeah. Um, I just finished a project. I just finished a draft for a third book, actually. And um, that, that book... Um, I don't want to tell y'all too much about it, but look, look out for it. It's not the 1919 book. That's going to be my fourth book. Knock on wood. Um, but, uh, that book was very easy to write. Uh, it's a story that I wasn't expecting to want to tell. It's fiction and it, I wasn't planning on writing it. And then like this character wouldn't leave, wouldn't leave me alone. And so I had to write about her. Um, and so that didn't, but it still felt like work. If it doesn't feel like, I mean, I think that there's such a thing as writing as like reflective healing exercise. Um, but for me, and I do that occasionally, but for the most part, I'm like, this is my job and I have to, I have to bring that good Chicago work ethic to it, you know? Um, and so it feels like work, not in a bad way, but in the way that like, I want to do good. <laughs> I want to do a good job. I want to structure it. I want to do it even when I don't feel like doing it. I do it anyway, you know? Um, so no, it doesn't stop feeling like work. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's like a joyful labor. The last question we have time for from the night, and I saved it for last purposely, Laura, Black Panther. Oh! Let's talk a little bit about Black Panther. Man, you're so bogus to bring it the last. That's like a whole other show. I know, but we, we you know, that's yeah. why. You know, what is it? Yeah. There's more to the question. What was your favorite thing about it? Anything it could have done better? The answer is no, nothing could have I been mean, better. I mean, all art can be better, but uh, I. it was so good. Okay, I think that my favorite, at the risk of like, as you've now seen, I'm prone to being very long-winded and I am very excited about this film. I think my favorite thing about it was that I went, I went expecting like a solid, exciting action film. I was like, I'm going to go in. It's going to be well-written. It's going to be cool. There's going to be people fighting. Also, I'd have no, there's going to be spoilers in what I say, so I'm not sorry. Um, so you can leave now if you have a problem with that. Um, but what I didn't expect was that there would be this like ethical dilemma between these characters and that you would have a supposed villain that actually create like that people the whole time we were sitting in the theater my partner was looking at me he was like he's right <laughs> you know and so many of us have that my current twitter name is killmonger but make it feminist uh and yeah i just didn't expect that you would have this real moral dilemma between these two characters um, that would generate incredible conversations and like incredible conversations about what does liberation look like? What does freedom look like? What is the role of violence in that or not? What is the role of women or leadership in that? Um, I did not expect that at all from like a really dope superhero movie. So that was my favorite part. Um, and then also like, I don't think I've ever seen 
a, definitely not an action movie and it's hard for me to think of almost any movie that had so many rich women characters that were like full human beings and didn't have like it that was just amazing amazing to see i'm really grateful for that um yeah it was a great great film and it was just dope like there was dope fighting <laughs> you know yeah, Black Panther got washed though multiple times. So it was like, dang, <laughs> definitely got your. Yeah, I'm not gonna cuss on the air. Don't do that, but yeah, Mike. You, gotta one, beat you down. got one quick question. You got oh, one minute. It's not a quick one, but <laughs> <laughs> you're like, how I, do we end I, racism? I was. <laughs> do you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, everyone has to read the report that they wrote. In you got you got one minute, Mike. About, Can yeah. you do it? Oh God, uh, you were you were on a show a few months ago. Public uh, in the public sphere. Oh, story, story in the public square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On Rhode Island public television. Is that what it was? Yes, it was. Well, it's on YouTube, and yeah. I saw it. Um, and you, you said something interesting on there. Um, you said when I was when I was a public school teacher, I had I had these same opinions, I had these same thoughts, but nobody cared. You know, it, when I had the PhD at the end of the name, and you know, a book deal or whatever, people started to pay attention. And I think that's really. A really strong statement because a lot of people a lot of us out here feel that way you mm -hmm. know a lot of people have strong opinions and there are things you can do you can write your alderman yep. and get you know the boilerplate email back or you know have the secretary put you on hold but you know is it do you have any advice for people out there who are feeling frustrated that their voice is lost Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think the reason I like to say that in interviews is because I want people to feel bad for all the teachers that they didn't have on air nice. and that they chose to have me instead. Um, and I want them to, like, feel ashamed. <laughs> uh, and also because I think about, like, Zora Neale Hurston, who just had a birthday recently, and the fact that, like, she's one of the most important American writers of the 20th century, and she died in an unmarked grave, right? Mm. Well, she they, she died and then she was put in the. Grave. She has a lost uh, novel coming out. Did you know? Yes, that? she There's does. She has a new novel. novel coming out, and it was only because Alice Walker like found her grave and purchased a headstone for her and was like, "This is actually an amazing writer." So I'm always like, "Who are our Zoras now? Who are the people that we're leaving to struggle in obscurity and not appreciating and not celebrating?" Um, so that's partially why I say that. But now you're doing something interesting, which is making me think about the other side of that question, and I think that. Um, it's always important to remember that m social change happens because of lots of people and not ever because of one charismatic person. Dr. King would have showed up at the March on Washington and spoken to an empty lawn if people had not gotten all the buses to bring everybody there, if people had not made the sandwiches to feed everyone, if people had not, often women, mostly women, had not picked up the phone and been like, hey, you coming to the march tomorrow? You need a ride? Like, those are the things that make a difference and make social movements. And I think that as a society, the more we move away from the idea that there are charismatic heroes, the sooner we can all realize how powerful we are to make changes. Um, and so if you feel like your voice is not being heard, I always say, build where you are, show up to your alderman's office. Like I actually think that's why I'm really into aldermen is because it's one, it's like a local powerful person that you can actually access. Mine's Burke, um, I can't. Oh yeah, okay, no. you can't do it. Yeah, he's just a demon. Uh, <laughs> it's not that he's a demon, I feel that there's an ancient demon that has been keeping Ed Burke. Ed like, Burke that, like, you know, it's like a, we he's got like a seconds. Sith. Okay, okay, I won't tell you seconds. my Ed Burke Sith Lord theory. Let's hear the next, let's hear the next Save show. Save it for the next one. Yes, uh, yes, believe in yourself and never give up on your dreams. That's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> Follow ladies, your heart. Ladies and gentlemen, Eve Ewing. <laughs> Thank you, Eve. Thank you, everybody. Awesome.
I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Eve Ewing, the author and cultural critic, in front of a live studio audience at Pilsen Community Books on February 22nd. It first aired on February 25th, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.